Brother Tim's message on the subject of adoption. That's one of the most important and sweetest doctrines contained in the Bible. And it is a very simple thing, and uh, I appreciate that. Uh, this morning I want to go to the 10th chapter of the book of Luke. Now, last Sunday we spoke to you from the 4th chapter of the Gospel of John. In John chapter 4, we went over the events that occurred in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ when we saw where it said, He must needs go through Samaria. As he went through Samaria, he came to a well known as Jacob's Well. And he sat on that well and he met a Samaritan woman. And we certainly don't want to go back over everything we preached last Sunday, but here was a Samaritan woman uh, that we dealt with last week. We want to deal with a Samaritan man today in Luke chapter 10. Now, for those who were not here last Sunday, uh, just a brief statement about who a Samaritan was. Uh, the Samaritans had come to be known as Samaritans for about 700 years prior to the birth of Christ when the Assyrian Empire conquered the northern tribes of Israel and took most of them captive, left a few, repopulated the land with some of their own people and also people of other nations they'd taken captive. And then over a course of time, they intermingled uh, and they married and had children, etc. And so they lost, you might say, their pedigree. They, they lost their genealogy. They cannot prove their genealogy by the genealogy anymore that they were truly Jews. So there was a wall that went up between the Samaritans and the Jew in the days of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, the Jews had, simply had no dealings with the Samaritans, and also the Samaritans had no dealings with the Jews. So the Lord went into Samaria to meet with this Samaritan woman. He had an appointment with her. She did not know anything about it, but she soon did. And we know how that uh, all worked out. Uh, at the end, uh, she went back and told her people, Come see a man which told me all things which I ever did. Is this not the Christ? Only the Christ could have told her the things that he told her. And many believed on him because of her words. She became a great witness for the cause of Christ. Well, in Luke chapter 10, we're going to look at what some people call a parable. It couldn't be. It's not said that it is. And it could be a, actually a real event that took place. Uh, we find where a certain lawyer came to the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Bible says, tempted him. And he asked Christ a question. And the question he asked him, he says, Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, he didn't ask this question sincerely. He didn't ask this question honestly. There's nothing necessarily wrong with the question. A lot of people in their darkness, before they come to the light of the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, ask all kinds of questions in sincerity. But this man's question was not a sincere question. This man's question was not an honest question. Because he only asked it because he wanted to tempt Christ. Just like on other occasions, people ask him questions to ensnare him, to entrap him. Their questions on the surface might seem to be good questions, but they were not good questions standpoint of the sincerity and the honesty of the person who was asking the question. So it is here with a certain lawyer. Now, not all lawyers were like this lawyer. This is a certain lawyer. And it kind of reminds me of a little story about two lawyers in a court case that neither one liked the other one. And it was a kind of a controversial case. And as it was about to get started, one lawyer just jumped up and called the other lawyer a liar. And that lawyer then jumped up in retaliation and called that lawyer a thief. Then the judge said, since these lawyers have identified themselves, we can now proceed with the case. Sorry, Brother Larry. Uh, but anyway, 
So here's a certain lawyer. Now the lawyer here is not like a lawyer like we might think of today. We think about defense lawyers, prosecuting lawyers, real estate lawyers, et cetera, et cetera. This lawyer was a scribe. He was supposed to be an expert in Moses' law, in the law that God gave to Israel in the Old Testament day. So the certain lawyer comes to the Lord Jesus Christ, tempting him with this question, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now the Lord's going to answer his question with a question, and we'll get to in just a moment. But anyway, the subject of eternal life is an important subject, I'd say, wouldn't you? I'd say it is. And it's a, it's a simple thing, like Brother Tim was telling us this morning, it's something really simple. For example, Titus 1-2, Paul says to Titus, in hope of eternal life, which God that cannot lie promised before the world began. Eternal life is based upon a promise that God made. And we know that God cannot lie. He's truth personified, and Paul says so, in hope of eternal life. The word hope means an earnest expectation of. It means it's based upon the, the promise of God. You can depend upon God's promise, whatever the promise might be. In this case, the promise is eternal life, and, and God made the promise. In hope of eternal life, which God that cannot lie promised, when? Before the world began. Tim was in Ephesians 1, 4, and 5, and 6 just a while ago. What he read to you and spoke on there took place before the world began. The Lord's people have a history that goes back before the foundation of the world, before the world began. Now, you won't hardly hear that, anything like that, anywhere else you might go. But you're going to hear it here from time to time. It's an important part of your history with God. So, eternal life is based upon a promise. In the book of Romans, chapter 6, verse 23, Paul says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Notice the two parts of this statement. For the wages of sin. Now wages is something that you earn, that you work for. And I can assure you, you have earned death. You have worked for death. With your sinful nature, your sinful life, you have worked for these wages under consideration. But thank God you're not going to get them. For the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Eternal life is based upon a promise. Eternal life is a gift. Ephesians 2 8, for by grace are you saved through faith that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. In John chapter 17, the opening verses, Christ prays a high priestly prayer. He says, Father, the hour has come, glorify thy Son, he might also glorify thee, as thou hast given him power of all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. How I many is going to have eternal life? As many as the Father gave to the Son. Eternal life is not based on an offer. It's not based on conditions. It's based upon the free gift of God. The Lord Jesus Christ in John 10, known as the chapter of Christ as the Good Shepherd, we look in verse 26, and Jesus addresses two categories of people here. The first category are people who are not his sheep. He says, you believe not because you're not of my sheep. But my sheep hear my voice and follow me, and I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Now I want you to take a look at that first part of, the, of that verse, and, and look what it would say if we reversed it. Now the Lord said, ye believe not because, here, here's a cause, ye believe not because you're not of my sheep. Let's suppose we flip that, and the Lord said, you're not of my sheep because you have not believed. 
If the Lord had said that, that might give a little, little fear, fuel, you might say, to the doctrine of free will. But the Lord said, you believe not because, here's why you don't believe, because you're not of my sheep. But my sheep hear my voice, and they follow me, and I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. They shall never perish. No man shall pluck them out of my hand. My Father which gave me them is greater than all, and no man can pluck them out of my Father's hand. So can, what can you do to inherit eternal life? Can you do something to inherit eternal life? This is a lawyer who has expertise in Moses' law that God gave hundreds of years before that. All right, the Lord here says unto him, what is written in the law? That's his question. He answers a question with a question. That's a, that's a, a smart strategy sometimes when you're dealing with people. You answer their question with a question, and you put them on defense. They were, they were on offense, now they're on defense. He says, what is written in the law? How readest thou? How, how do you read the law? You, you know, you should know the law. You're a lawyer. You're an expert in the law. So what, what is written in the law? And he answering said, and he's going to quote from Deuteronomy 6 and 5. He's also going to quote uh, from Leviticus 19.18 in his answer. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy strength and with all thy mind and thy neighbor as thyself. Here's a man quoting the law from Deuteronomy 6 and 5, which says, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, all thy mind, all thy soul, and all thy strength. And the very question he's asked the Lord is a dishonest one. He's asked this question to tempt the Lord, and he actually quoting from Deuteronomy 6 and 5. I think he got a little uncomfortable with that, with that answer. The Lord knew he gave the right answer. Notice what the Lord said. He said unto him, Thou hast answered right, this do, and thou shalt live. Now, was the Lord telling him that he actually could do that and live? That he could have eternal life? If, see, the law demanded total perfection. What does the Bible say about that? In the book of James, chapter 2 and verse 10, James says, Whosoever offended in one point of the law, one point is guilty of all. I got a feeling this lawyer knew he had not loved the Lord thy God, his God, with all of his heart, with all of his soul, all his might and all his strength, all the time. If he hadn't loved him that way all the time, uh, he fell short. And if he hadn't loved his neighbors himself all the time, I mean, every hour, every minute, every second, he is, he's falling short. So James tells us, if you just offend in one point, as you take a look at the Ten Commandments, for example, if you've ever told one lie, you're guilty of all, from the standpoint of standing before God. If you've ever taken anything that didn't belong to you, you're guilty of all. If you've ever coveted something that belonged to somebody else, you're guilty of breaking the law. If you've ever looked at a man or a woman in a way that you shouldn't have looked at them, then you've broken the law. If you have failed to honor your mother and your father as you should have, in any aspect whatsoever, just to the slightest degree, you've broken the law. If you've ever, ever had an idol in your life, then don't tell me you haven't. When you looked in the mirror this morning, you probably saw one. If you've ever had an idol in your life, you've broken the law. If you failed to keep the Lord's commandments, in this case, the Sabbath day, one time, you've broken the law. But somebody had to keep that law. That law had to be kept by somebody or 
we would not be receiving the gift of eternal life. And so we find twice in the book of Isaiah where it says, the Lord looked and saw there was none to help. Therefore his own arm brought salvation unto him. As God looked down upon all humanity, there was none who could keep that law to total perfection. And therefore he sent his son who could and who did. Look in Galatians 3.10. For as many as of, of the law, under the curse of the law. See, there was a curse attached to the law. As many as of the law, under the curse of the law, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who continueth not in all things written in the law. Emphasize all things. Cursed is he that continueth not, underlined, I have it in my Bible underlined, <laughs> that continueth not in all things, underlined, to do them. So if he had not done all things contained in the law, and I'm going to tell you, uh, the law contained a lot of things. <laughs> the law contained a lot of things, more than I could begin to number here this morning. If he had not continued in all things or anybody else, in all things written in the law, and then he's under the curse. But he's saying no, that no flesh is justified by the law. It is evident for the just shall live by faith. In verse 13, thank God that's in here. He says, for Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law. He's redeemed us from that curse because Jesus Christ did do everything contained in the law. He crossed all the T's. He dotted all the I's. He came not to destroy the law. He came to fulfill the law. And he did it to a jot and to a tittle, you see. Notice the first four verses of Romans chapter 8. He says here, there is therefore now no condemnation of them who are in Christ Jesus. Who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. You got two laws here. By nature, you're under the law of sin and death. But there's another law, a life-giving law. But the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. For the law, for what the law could not do in being weak through the flesh. He said, what the law could not do. Why? Because of the weakness of human flesh. My weakness, your weakness, weakness of every human being on this earth. For what the law could not do, be weak through the flesh, God sent forth his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us according to his grace. The Lord said, how readest the law? What is written? How, how readest thou? And he read it. He read Deuteronomy 6 and, 6 and 5. He read Leviticus 19, 18. And the Lord said, Thou hast answered right, this do and thou shall live. But he couldn't do it. The Lord's not saying he could do this and live. The Lord is just simply telling him, it's impossible for you to do this. See, eight chapters from now, in Luke chapter 18, there's going to be another man going to ask the Lord the exact same question. But he's a rich young ruler. The Lord answered him in a similar but a little bit different way. And in the end, here's what the Lord said to the disciples. So the disciples witnessed what he said to that man. And the disciples said, well, then who can be saved? If this rich young ruler cannot be saved by keeping the law, then who can be saved? And the Lord Jesus Christ said, with men, this is impossible. But all things are possible with God. Now, the first part of that verse is bad news, isn't it? <laughs> with men, this is impossible. That's bad news. But the second part is good news. 
But with God, all things are possible. And so the Lord Jesus Christ did what we couldn't do. Jesus Christ did the impossible. He came. He died on Calvary. He redeemed us from the curse of the law. He satisfied God's righteous demands of the law, kept it to total perfection. And that's how the Lord's people were saved. So the lawyers seem to let, kind of let this question go. And I don't blame him. <laughs> he said, well, then, then who's my neighbor? And that's what gave rise to the story of the Good Samaritan. Now, I'm just going to condense the story of the Good Samaritan here just for a moment. I'm going to read it like this. There was a man and went from, from one city to another city. And going from one city to another city, he fell among thieves. And they stripped him. They robbed him. They left him half dead and departed. And a man came by, looked at him, went to the other side. Then another man came by, looked at him, went on to the other side. And then another man come along the way and looked at him, went to him, done a number of things for him, took him to an inn, took care of him. Told the man at the inn, I'll be gone, but I'll be back in a few days. Whatever else I owe you, I'll pay you. Now, everything I told you is accurate. But it's how did the Lord state it? The Lord gives us specifics. The Lord tells us the name of those two cities for a reason. The Lord tells us what kind of man came by first, what kind of man came by second, what kind of man came by third. That's what makes this story what it is. So what about Jerusalem? What about Jericho? What about a Levite? What about a priest? What about a Samaritan? If you don't know what a Levite is, or a priest is, a Samaritan is, or some uh, distinct difference between Jerusalem and Jericho, you're going to miss the main point of all this lesson. So the Lord put it in there. He could have wrote it just like I said to begin with, couldn't he? You think you'd have gotten the same lesson out of it? You would not have. So let's take a look at it. There's a certain man, we don't know his name, doesn't matter, the Lord will tell us. There's a certain man that went down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now, these two words have something in common. They both begin with the letter J, and that's about it. Jerusalem. The word Salem, part of the word Jerusalem means peace. Remember when Melchizedek was... Uh, uh, came in, he was king of righteousness, king of Salem. The word Salem means peace, picturing the Lord Jesus Christ. Jerusalem was a city that God chose way back. You read about it, and you read about it a couple of different times in the book of 1 Kings. It's a city that God chose. Israel did not choose a city, God did. God chose this city to put his name there. He had Solomon build the temple in this city. Offering sacrifices are made in this city. We find... In Matthew chapter 5, where the Lord tells his disciples, he says, When you swear, swear not by heaven, which is God's throne, this earth with his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, the city of the great king. It was a city of prophets, the city of kings. It's probably the most important city that's ever existed on this earth for different reasons. And then it has a spiritual uh, connection to it. You come over to Hebrews chapter 12, and he says, For you've not come unto... Uh, you know, uh, Mount Sinai, but you come under Mount Zion, the city of the living God, New Jerusalem, which come down from God out of heaven. So that's the city of Jerusalem. Let's take a look at the city of Jericho just for a moment. The city of Jericho is the oldest city in existence. The city of Jericho is known as the city of palm trees 
But it's also a city that comes to our attention in Joshua chapter 2 because it's going to be the first city that the Israelites are going to, uh, you know, have a connection with when they cross Jordan's River into the land of Canaan. So Joshua sends two spies over Jordan's River to the city of Jericho, and they find a woman who lives in Jericho by the name of Rahab. Rahab the harlot lives there. And then we're going to come to chapter 6, and you're going to see when they cross Jordan, God gave them a plan how to take the city of Jericho. Jericho was a great fortified city. If they couldn't get by Jericho, no need to try to occupy the rest of the land. So it was going to be a major test. God gives them the plan. They'd walk around that city one time a day for the first six days. On the seventh day, they'd walk around seven times. And on the seventh time going around that city, they're going to blow with the trumpets. And uh, they're going to shout. And the walls of that city are going to fall flat. Going to fall flat. And they're going to conquer that city. In Joshua chapter 6, you're going to find where Joshua put a curse on this city. He accursed this city. Now, you got Jerusalem, the city of the great king. you got Jericho, the city of the curse. This man's going to go from Jerusalem to Jericho. He's going to live, leave the city of the great king to go to an accursed city. The Bible says he went down. Now, I've told you this before. Uh, Jerusalem is south of Jericho, or Jericho is north of Jerusalem. And generally speaking, in conversation, when you say you're going somewhere, and you just say you're going to go to Louisville, you don't say, I'm going down to Louisville from here, do you? You don't say that because it's north. If you're going to go down to Atlanta, you wouldn't say, I'm going up to Atlanta because Atlanta is south. You say, I'm going down to Atlanta. Jericho is north of Jerusalem, so why does the Bible say he went down to Jerusalem? Mainly because anytime you leave the place where God's placed his name and God's placed his truth, and you leave there, you're going down. You're going down. All right, so he goes down to Jericho. The first time the expression went down is found in the Bible is in Genesis chapter 12. You're going to find where Abraham's been called out of the land of the earth, uh, land of the earth of Chaldees, a land of idolatry, to go to a land that God will show him, a land Abraham has never seen. By faith, Abraham takes the journey. He leaves the land of the earth of the Chaldees, and he comes down to the Palestine, Palestine area, comes down to the land of Canaan area, the land where God brought him, and God's promised him that through him and his seed, they would occupy that land. He makes it down there. But a famine comes in the land. And Abraham, when the famine came, the Bible says, went down into Egypt. That's the first time the expression went down is recorded in the Bible. And what happens? Abraham leaves the land of promise to go down to a land of idolatry and wickedness, the land of Egypt. That's why you read in Isaiah 30 and 2 and Isaiah 31 and 1 where it says, Woe to them that go down to Egypt for help. Woe unto them that go down to Egypt because Egypt is a picture of the world. Egypt is a picture of darkness. Egypt's a picture of evil in the word of God. And every time you read in the Bible where somebody went to Egypt, it will always tell you they went down to Egypt. I don't care from what direction they went. Now, what if the Bible said, woe to those who go to Egypt? And that would sound okay, wouldn't it? And that would make sense. Woe to those that go to Egypt. He didn't say woe to those that go to Egypt. He said, woe to those that go down into Egypt. Because when you leave the city of the great king, in this case, what it represents is a New Testament gospel church, and you leave it, you go down. And so he left Jerusalem to go down into Jericho. 
And the road from Jericho to Jerusalem was a long winding road. And he went through narrow passages and there was uh, cliffs on one side or another. It made a perfect place for thieves to attack people who were traveling, especially if they were traveling alone. It just wasn't a good idea to travel by yourself on the road from Jerusalem to Jericho or vice versa. But this man did. And the Bible says he was met with thieves. And those thieves, they attacked him. Those thieves, they rent his clothes off of him. Notice what it says about him. It says, they fell among thieves which stripped him of his raiment, wounded him, and departed leaving him half dead. <laughs> now that expression half dead is an interesting one to me. For the most part, it just simply means he left him in pretty bad shape. I mean, this man pretty much is helpless at this point. Uh, he's been robbed, his raiment's been stripped off of him, he's been wounded, and then he's been deserted. He's just left there to die. Half dead. In the Bible, we find a doctrine called depravity. And we read in the book of Romans, chapter 5 and verse 12, where Paul said, Wherefore, but one man sinned in the world, and death by sin, and death passed upon all men. Ephesians 2, 1 says, And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespass and sin. To hear a lot of people in the religious world talk, when Adam transgressed God's law, they just left mankind half dead. Did his transgression, transgression leave you half dead or he leave you all dead? His transgression left you dead by nature. That's what the Lord said. And day thou eatest thereof, Adam, talking about the tree of knowledge of good and evil. You need every tree in the garden except the knowledge, uh, tree of knowledge of good and evil. And the day thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely what? Thou shalt surely die. Somebody half dead is not dead. They're half dead, that means they're half alive. There's no such thing as dead, deader, and deadest. You're either dead or you're not dead. Somebody died yesterday, just as dead as somebody died a thousand years ago. There's no, no degrees in it, right? So if you're half dead, you're not dead. The religious system that's all around us today preaches a half-dead people. You ever heard somebody say, well, you know, everybody's got just a little bit of goodness in them. Where'd they get that? I want to know where they got that. As I like to say, they got it out of the Bible. To the left of Genesis, to the right of Revelation over here, way out of the Bible. It's not in the Bible, it's out of the Bible. Where did they get that? I read in Psalms 14:1, Psalms 53:1, where it says, The Lord looked down from heaven and saw there was none good, no, not one. Paul records that in Romans chapter 3 in the New Testament. There's none good, no, not one. There's none righteous, no, not one. The poison of acids under their lips, their feet are swift to shed blood. There's no fear of God before their eyes. There is not just a little bit of good in anybody until God puts it there in regeneration. Then and only then, after you've been born of the Spirit of God, is there any goodness about you? By nature, you're dead trespassing sins. It requires the quickening power of the voice of the Son of God to change that, to bring you out from a state of death and sin to a state of life in the Lord Jesus Christ. Then and only then is there goodness in your heart. You know, a little bit of good in everybody. All you got to do is just kind of fan the good. Well, I can tell you, you can fan a dead end sinner all you want to. All you do is make him cooler. That's the only change. That's the only benefit he'll have when you're doing all the fanning you want to fan. He's left half dead. 
Paul says, when you were quickened, the state you was in before you were quickened was a state of death. And I read over here in the 24th verse of the book of Jude, where there's some people Jude's been talking about who are like clouds without water. And he says they're fruitless and they're rootless. And they're ruthless too. But they're fruitless and they're rootless. It says they're twice dead, plucked up by the roots. How can somebody be twice dead? <laughs> well, I guess you could say Lazarus was. <laughs> Lazarus was dead and God raised him from the dead. I know he died again, so I guess he died twice. Uh, I'm okay with once. <laughs> okay. Well, the reason you'd be twice dead is because, first of all, they were dead. He's, the ones he's talking about were dead in trespass and sin. He compared them to Kor and to Cain, those wicked people, and Balaam. He compared them to them. They were dead in trespass and sin. They were also dead to the knowledge of the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ. The word death means separated. They were dead. They had made perhaps a profession, but they were not, professor, not possessors. They were only professors. In that particular day. They were twice dead, plucked up by the roots. And the only thing I have found that dead men can do biblically is bury somebody else that's dead. When that man came to the Lord and said, Ah, oh, Father, whither said thou goest? And the Lord said, He said, But let me first go and bury my father. The Lord said unto him, He said, Let the dead bury the dead. So I guess that's something the dead can do. The dead can bury the dead. Then they're not dead physically, corporally. And of course, the other thing I know that the dead can do in our society today is vote. That happens every election. Every election, dead people vote. That's right. Dead people vote every single election. But in reality, we know a dead man can't do anything, right? And a person dead in trespassing sins cannot believe, he cannot have, exercise faith because he doesn't have that. He doesn't have the capacity, the will to do such. He can't genuinely repent. He can't sincerely and biblically be baptized because he's dead in trespass and sins. And one of the requirements of being baptized is that you must show the fruit of the Spirit of God in your life. And you need to show a repentant life that you've had enough of this old world here and you want to now deny yourself, take up your cross and follow the Lord Jesus Christ in discipleship and you want to follow him into the liquid grave to be put beneath the water to be raised up to walk in newness of life. So they attack him. They strip him of his garments. They rob him. They leave him half dead. And then they depart from him. And along comes a priest. It says, by chance, a priest came by. And then a Levite came by. Now I want to uh, connect these two because this is very important here. You don't have just two ordinary people walking by here. You got a priest walking by and you got a Levite walking by. Now a priest was a Levite, but not every Levite was a priest. When Israel settled the land of Canaan, God gave instructions to Joshua how to divide that land up among the 12 tribes. But there was one tribe out of the 12 that didn't get any land, it's the tribe of Levi. So the land was divided among 11 tribes. God chose the tribe of Levi to minister unto him in the tabernacle in the temple. But also, remember what the last plague was when God delivered Israel out of the land of Egypt? What was the last plague? It was the death of the firstborn, wasn't it? The death of the firstborn that's when Pharaoh finally let them go. When they crossed Jordan, excuse me, crossed the Red Sea and into the wilderness, God instructs them that the firstborn among the Israelites belong to him. But he's going to substitute the tribe of Levi for the firstborn of everybody else. Levi becomes a substitute. 
Moses and Aaron were Levites. They were brothers. They were, they were Levites. And among the Levite people is Aaron, and from the family of Aaron is going to come the priesthood. That's why I told you that uh, every priest is a Levite, but not every Levite is a priest. But God gave the Jesus responsibility of taking the care of the tabernacle unto the Levites. Somebody had to take the tabernacle down. Somebody had to wrap the furniture in the tabernacle. They had to take great care of it. They had to wrap it up and keep it secure and move from one location to another location. And it was divided into three classifications. One was the priesthood, came through the family of Aaron. Another was to take care of the major things. And the third division of the tribe of Levi was to take care of more or less the minor things. And the tribe of Levi was given 48 cities. And those cities came from the other 11 tribes. They didn't have an inheritance like the rest of them did. So God did take care of them and gave them a city. And it was 48 cities. Six of those cities became the cities of refuge. So that's just a little background on the Levites. And here comes a priest, by the way, who's a Levite. But the Levite, coming back later, is not a priest. The priest made offerings and sacrifices uh, to God. First of all, the tabernacle and then in the temple. And so the priest comes by. Now, you might have thought, well, surely the priest will do something about this man, right? But let's notice what the Bible says. And by chance there came down a certain priest that way. When he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And likewise, a Levite, when he was at the place, came and looked at him and passed by on the other side. Now, the person there passing by, without doubt, is a Jewish person. Here are some Jews who see a fellow Jew in bad shape, he's half dead, and they see him and they pass by on the other side and don't lift one little finger to try to help him. You're going to find three categories of people before us here this morning. The first, you're going to find the thieves. And the thieves, you know what their, um, their attitude is? What's yours is mine. That's what a thief is. What's yours is mine. I just need to take it. What's yours is mine. And the Lord Jesus Christ dealt with these all his ministry. Remember when the Lord came into the temple and he took a scourge of cords and drove out the, the money changers, turned over their tables and money changers. What did he say to them? He said, it's written, my father's house be called a house of prayer. You made a den of what? A den of thieves. When they came to take the Lord Jesus Christ in the garden of Gethsemane, the Lord said, are you coming out at nighttime with these staves and swords as if you want to take what? A thief? In John chapter 8, verse 44, he tells us that the devil is a murderer, a liar, and a thief. You know, a murderer is a thief as well, because when he takes a life, he takes something that didn't belong to him. He's guilty of being a murderer. He's also guilty of being a thief. And that's what Satan is. When the Lord Jesus Christ was crucified, he was crucified between two men. What were they? They were thieves. Crucified between two thieves. These thieves here come along and their attitude is and their philosophy is, what's yours is mine. But now the Levite and the priest come along and what's their philosophy? What's mine is mine. We're going to see the philosophy of Good Samaritan in just a moment. The thieves, what's yours is mine. The Levite and the priest, what's mine is mine. Okay? So they pass by on the other side. So then another man comes along, a Samaritan. Now, if you don't know who a Samaritan is, this story is not going to be near as beneficial to you as we talked about the Samaritan woman last Sunday. But you need, here's a Levite, here's a man of religion, here's a priest, here's a man of religion, here's a man of the law. The law didn't, couldn't help the man. 
The law couldn't help the man. The law can't help me. <laughs> and the law can't help you. Now, it's very beneficial that I keep the law. That'll help me if I keep the law, the moral law of God. See, I'm not under the civil law that God gave Israel. Uh, I'm under the civil law of the state of Tennessee, the United States of America, the state of Tennessee, uh, Sumner County. That's the civil law I'm under. I'm not under the ceremonial law of Moses' law. I don't come here to the house of God and bring a lamb and bring a sheep and bring an oxen here to make an offering and a sacrifice. I do make a living sacrifice if I do what I'm supposed to do. In Romans 12, 1, Paul said, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercy of God, you present your body a living sacrifice, holy to God, which is your reasonable service. Your sacrifice, you made a sacrifice here today already in the fact that you're here in body if you did it with the right heart and the right spirit and sincerity. And you'll make another sacrifice when you honor the Lord uh, in the plate back there. As we read in Proverbs 3, 9, Honor the Lord with thy substance and the first fruits of thine increase. It says thy barns might be filled with plenty and thy presses with new wine. The Lord expects us to honor him in that way. And then in Hebrews chapter 13, you're going to find what the writer tells us uh, that we are to offer the sacrifice of praise, even the fruit of our lips. Uh, with such sacrifices, God is, is well is uh, well pleased. So we are making sacrifices today, but not like those of the Old Testament. But there are 10 laws that God gave us. I am still under, that's the moral law of God. I'm still under the 10 commandments that God gave Israel back in that day. They were reiterated and reestablished in the New Testament day. I'm under that moral law. I'm under it. But the law can't save me. I can't keep it to perfection. The Levite and the priest come along. You would expect them to have done something, wouldn't you? They had the instructions. Again, they're instructed to love thy neighbors thyself. What kind of love do we see? They look at him, pass the other side. I don't see much love in that. There's no love in that, is it? What's mine is mine. You may need some help right now, but I ain't got time for you. I, I got an appointment. I got a tea time. I, I got a, you know, whatever. I, I, I got to be somewhere else. Somebody else surely will come along. Have you ever done that? Have you ever seen somebody in need and you thought, well, I just ain't got time to stop? But there's a lot of traffic. Somebody else will stop. Surely somebody else will help out. <laughs> so they pass them out on the other side. But I want you to listen to everything this Samaritan did. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was. That's the important statement. When he saw him, he had compassion on him. Eight different times in the Gospels, we find eight different distinct times when it said that Christ had compassion on the individual, compassion on the multitude. He had compassion on the people that were blind. He had compassion on the woman who'd lost her son there in the city of Nain. It was on the way to the cemetery. He had compassion upon her. This man had compassion. He came where he was. He had compassion. I, I say, think of the word compassion. I always have to mention or think about that lamentations. It's of the Lord's mercies we're not consumed. His compassions fail not. Thank God for, for God whose compassions never fail. His compassion never failed me. He's never failed you. But what about you and what about me? Have we always had compassion like we need to have compassion on one another? Again, there's a difference between compassion and pity. Compassion means you walk right along beside the person that's under consideration. You put yourself in their shoes the very best you can. There's a feeling inside that says, help this individual, and you do whatever you can to help them. So he had compassion. Went down to him. When the Lord looked down from heaven, he saw there was none there. What did the Lord do? He came down to us, didn't he? 
The Lord left heaven's pure world to come to this old sinful world in which we live. you got to think, man, I, I, I don't know how he did it. <laughs> I'll tell you how he did it. He did it based upon his everlasting love, based upon his everlasting grace and his mercy. He had a bride here in this world. He had a people here in this world that he loved so dearly he was willing to give his only begotten son that he might come in this world and die for us to bring us home to glory one day. I believe that's one of the greatest miracles contained in the word of God. Of all the miracles you could list, all the miracles you could uh, uh, study, I believe this is the greatest miracle of all, how God could give his only begotten son, how God could spare his own son for sinful creatures like we are, for poor, weak, frail, sinful, undone, unworthy creatures, my friends. God sent his son in this world to save us from our sins. How in the world could God send his son for somebody like you, somebody like me? How could he? His son was precious. His son was perfect. His son was holy. His son was righteous. His son had been with him in all eternity. But for a period of 33 years, he was willing to be without his son that his son might come into this world and die and save his people from their sins. Hope and pray God never let me lose thought of that. Never, never let me lose thought of that. If I can just remember that, Lord, I'll always be in your house. <laughs> you know, I, I, I hate to almost say this, but I'm going to do it. I, I, I know of a vacation not long ago where a pastor said to one of the members of the church who hadn't been there in a long time. He said, well, it was on a Saturday. He said, well, I'll expect to see you at church tomorrow. And he said, well, why should I be there? i tell you what I'd have told him. I'd have said, do you think Christ died for you? Do you think Christ saved you from your sins? Do you think Christ delivered you from an eternal burning hell to live with him in glory someday? Do you believe that? And if you do, that's why you'll be in the house of God tomorrow. Imagine responding to a pastor like that. I've had a lot of (laughs) things that have been told me in life, but don't ever tell me that. I don't ever want to get out of sorts. <laughs> but my friends, that just might get me out of it. <laughs> if you don't love the Lord any more than that, it's sad. This Samaritan went to him, bound up his wounds, poured in oil and wine, and set him in his own beast and brought him to the inn and took care of him. 1 Peter 5, 7. Casting all your care upon him, for he careth for you. And on the morrow, when he departed, he took out two pence. That's two days' wages. Or maybe later today, you might do a little calculating. And come up with how much you make in two days. And ask yourself, would I be willing to separate myself from those two days' wages in a situation like this? That's what he did. Just got two pence, gave them to the host and said unto him, take care of him. Now notice he took care of him. Now he tells the, the host at the end, you take care of him. And whatsoever thou spendest more, when I'll come again, I'll repay you. Now I've already paid you two pence, but I know there's going to be some more to it. And whatever it is, it doesn't matter. When I come back, if you take care of him, I'll pay you. I'll stand for it. This man's got nothing.
What's the attitude of this man? Remember the attitude of the other two? The thieves is this. What's yours is mine. Attitude of the Levite and the priest. What's mine is mine. Attitude of the good Samaritan. What's mine is yours. That's the Christian doctrine. That's the Christian way of life. What I've got, if you have a need, is yours. Which now of these three thinkest thou was neighbor to him that fell among the thieves? He said, He that showeth mercy on him. Then said Jesus unto him, Go and do likewise. This was something he could do. The first thing the Lord told him to do and live, he couldn't do. But this is something that he could do. Something I can do. We all can do. What's mine is yours if there's a need that you have.